chapter 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds, but you can still call him my Lord. It's okay. I yell at my sons. They have to call me. Anybody know what my preferred title is at home? Excellency. That's how George Washington snapped at people if they called him the wrong thing. Except I think he would also, well, never mind. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. He said, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. What is Jesus illustrating here? The guy who is your religious leader might be a schnook. But he's a schnook who sits in a position of authority in the church. So Jesus is not wrong by saying practice and observe whatever they tell you. But then he goes on to say, but don't do as they do. Because they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads, burdens that are hard to carry, and place them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to help them. Uh, So Jesus is addressing a paradox that still bothers believers today. If my shepherd um, is a no-good schnook, do I still have to listen to him? And his answer is, he's still God's word, or rather the mouthpiece of God's word and of the Holy Spirit, regardless of his life. But the offense of the Pharisees should be addressed by whom? Well, either by the other Pharisees or by the people. They should, they should say something. As Jesus has been saying all along, Jesus will challenge them on wrong teaching and so forth. Um, and so you can, uh, you can also sp- say something. I'm going to get to offense in a second, but go ahead, Diane. Um, there are different ways of counting that. It's often thought to be the same number of laws as a guy has bones in his body. Or something along those lines. There, there, there's an advertisement like that made somewhere by somebody. Um, I, well, that's part of Jesus' point that he makes. Right. Is that if this is a scriptural law. rule, law, if you're, they're just rehearsing something out of Moses or restating it, fine, well and good. But if not, then what are they doing? Then this is a a law made by men. And what he's about to get to here is that they will sometimes insist on the piddling things and overlook the things that should be the whole point. They get all worked up about the way that people treat the, the, the sacrifices that happen on the altar. And they don't care about the altar. Or they get all wrapped up about the way that the altar is treated and they go, don't care about the tabernacle itself. And, or about God, whose house this is. You know, so that, that's where he's going with this. He's, he's, he's going to build up in this chapter. Um, and then we're going to get from there into what I used to sometimes call the Elvis section of Scripture. Because everything is woe, woe, woe. So that's, that's the remainder of the chapter here. I worked hard my vicar year at making that joke, and it fell flat. So I think only Kath 
even cared to smile. Let's go on. <laughs> That's because I work harder. Yeah. They do all their work to be seen by people. They make their phylacteries wide and lengthen the fringes of their garment. Look at the guy's outfit there. What do you see that, I mean, he's wearing a shawl, right? And a, and a, a, a yarmulke, the little hat, right? But what else has he got on? Say it again. Well, tell me where on the head and what else does he, is he got that's odd? He's got that thing around his arm. It's actually going into another phylactery in his hand. It's tied up all along his wrist. There's a specific way of tying this. Like if any of you ever have to put on like an ace bandage at night before you go to bed, you know, there's a way of tying that. And there was, there is of a phylactery. This is a phylactery. It's this little box um, with a, uh, that got little tiny scrolls of scripture in it. Okay, and there might be various different things. And there, there's an old painting here of a guy showing uh, the, this, this boy how to tie a phylactery around his wrist correctly. Um, and around the head, there's a way of doing it. Um, if you've ever been to karate class, there is a correct way of tying your karate belt. And then there are a hundred wrong ways of tying your karate belt. And your master, if he's the same kind I had, um, will uh, correct you if you've got it wrong. That's enough of that. Okay. So there were other things though, but those phylacteries, they would make them... By making them wide, I think they'd make the boxes bigger for more scrolls or whatever. So how much scripture can you carry on your forehead? Walk around with it. When I was a, a house painter, we would occasionally work in the, the wealthier sections in Madison, Wisconsin, and Middleton, and so forth. And a lot of these would be Jewish quarters, and we're painting, and you'd have to pry off the mezuzah off the door to repaint the door frame. And uh, my... my, my <laughs> My cousin Jeff was terrified. It was like voodoo to him. He wouldn't do it. So he would make me pry it off. I, I just did it. Like I, I know what this is. It's not voodoo. Um, you treat it with respect. But the, the, the mezuzah, a little, a little brass, usually painted brass uh, container with two nails that went into the door frame. That's all. You pry it off with your putty knife. You keep the mezuzah and the two nails where you keep the switch plates and the screws. You know, because you're going to be painting, and uh, and I would make sure I would cover it with a with a usually a paint rag to make sure, you know, it just stayed safe and didn't have sticks and, or it didn't blow away or something. And then you paint the door frame, and then at the end of the day, you just put it back on, no big deal. Um, but uh, this had scripture in it. But often um, I I would uh, laugh as uh, I had a cousin who painted with us who had had Hebrew. I wasn't studying for the ministry yet. My my cousin Tom. Uh, was a Krig bomb. You might have known some Krig bombs, but Tom had known and knew some Hebrew and would laugh because the passage that was in the mezuzah was just the command to have the mezuzah, you know, and not a not a not the Ten Commandments or something like you might think, but was yes. Is that the one that when Jewish people walk out the door they touch? Yeah, usually, okay. uh huh. And it might be at the top, or it might be, usually it was on the door frame on the side, as uh, the, the the ones that I saw anyway in Madison. Um, when I was painting. So 
Uh, just continuing here. They love to place... Did, did, I, did I finish what I was going to say here on the other? Yeah. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by people. Rabbi means teacher or my teacher. Um, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. So it's not wrong to be a rabbi, but it's sinful to covet the authority of the true master of God. Um, and, and to set yourself up in the place of God the Father. It's not wrong to be a teacher, but it's sinful to think that you have nothing to learn you know, from, from the Lord God. Um, I'm going to move on. Also, do not call anyone on earth your father, for you have one father and he's in heaven. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not wrong to have a dad, right? Um, but remember that you have a father in heaven. And you are not to be called leaders, for you have one leader, the Christ. But the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Actually, um, this is from Ezekiel 21. The lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. And uh, if we're given any special honor or glory because of that, that's God's doing and it's for God's purpose. Um, but we're all part of the same body. Like Paul told the Corinthians, if one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, everybody is honored. Every part rejoices. Um, and uh, our greatest joy is that Christ, who's the head of the body of believers, is honored. He's the rabbi. He's the master. He's the Messiah. And whether Jesus, as to whether Jesus... Um, uh, is the father, which somebody might pull out of this passage if they're not thinking, the son is not the father, right? Do you remember in, in, in your catechism classes, we would sometimes draw the triangle of the Trinity, father, son, Holy Spirit, and then God in the center, because they all connect to the word God with an is, but the father, remember what we would write above it? Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. So they are not one another, but they are all, each one is, he is God. You know, which is one of those things that transcends our understanding. But it's there. We let the scripture um, lie there as scripture. Um, yes, please. I've been too lazy to <laughs> uh, um, Chemnitz and later Johann Gerhardt quote their favorite Catholic theologian Bellarmine um, about this in a couple of places. I can't give you a location, but although in Gerhardt, um, Johann Gerhardt lived in the in the 1600s, um, and he. Uh, do, you, do you know how we have a gigantic set of commentaries on the whole Bible called the People's Bible? Imagine if each of those were a big, fat, hardcover book and it was three times longer than the People's Bible set. This is what Johann Gerhardt wrote about doctrine. And he called it the commonplaces. It's right now being translated into English. Um, the Missouri Synod is doing this. They're, they come out with about two a year. 
Um, and I own 12 of them. I've been, bu- I've been buying two a year since they started this. They're $60 a piece. Yeah, ouch is, is but this is, this is for my spirit, this is my spiritual growth. You know, and, and I love being in this. The one difficult thing is that the index is done according to place and not to page. So it's, they're kind of hard to find because they're in little boxes, these locations, but still. Um, but Gerhardt and, and, and his predecessor, Martin Chemnitz, um, talk about Bellarmine, about that and many other things. Like um, Bellarmine will quote this and just skip across the ramifications and that's where Martin Chemnitz, who's like a pit bull with doctrine, will come back barking at him. Well, how come you call all your priests father? And things like that. When they do this and this, and then you get these wonderful dogmatic lists of all of the errors of these guys. But they do, the Lutherans address it and the Catholics try to, you know, don't have any response. Like, ooh. I guess. And I mean, and, and, but what did happen in the beginning when Luther started doing that, a wagon showed up with empty barrels full of nuns. You know, that's how Luther got his wife because they, the nuns understood that this is just wrong. And so they started moving over. And so it's, it's, it's somewhere in Chemnitz's... Sorry, I got, I'm getting worked up. Um, but I've, uh, Pastor Sutton had the examination of the Council of Trent by Chemnitz. I don't own it. But Don has it. In fact, I think he gave it to Peter. It might be in my basement in a cardboard box right now. Um, and I remember reading in it about the Lutheran convents that still remained in Chemnitz's day, left over from the Reformation, that there were essentially some nuns who had become Lutheran but never got married. And the Lutherans had nothing to do but put them up in a convent and let them continue to serve the Lord, usually by, by uh, uh, doing things for the poor, making clothing, mending clothes, making food. And the, the great thing that the nuns did in Germany, brew beer for the, for the poor. You get sick drinking the water. You have to have beer every day. And there was beer and there was small beer, two different kinds. But um, I think we would call it light beer. I'm not sure about that. But, but, uh, they, the, but there, there were still nunneries even 100 years after the Reformation. Um, and so that now there are practically, I, practically, I don't think there are any Lutheran nuns left now 500 years later. Um, but we do have wonderful women um, who are either single or widowed, you know, or, or, or some divorced perhaps, who do marvelous work for the church, correct? Um, volunteering and so forth, whatever. From, from Renata, who sits in the office, to the ladies who help with the, 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 the counting, and you marvelous ladies that help with Oak Hills and do other things, and, and stuff the bulletins and do all of the mailings and basically like the rest of us whatever Renee tells us um, that uh, to direct and guide and say this is what needs to be done and we are grateful and that's what we do Um, so today that's where we go today 13 woe to you here it starts there there's a whole set now of these woe 
statements. I, I may count, comment on all of them, or I may comment mostly on this first one and that what's going to happen to the text in verse 14. But woe to you experts in the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. The Greek word hypocrite, anybody remember? I've talked about it before. Remember what it means? It's the Greek word for an actor. A hypocrite is somebody who is literally beneath the mask. So the Greeks would have a little handle and a mask and then go behind it. And that's the character that they're playing. So that's that, that be, but that became a word in general use, not for an actor, which is an okay thing to be, but for somebody who's acting like an actor, you know, pretending to be something that they gen, genuinely are not. And you guys should be God's leaders in the church, but you're not. You're hypocrites. Um, you shut the kingdom of heaven right in the front of the people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor do you permit those who are trying to enter to do so. Um, what a thing to say. You're slamming the door on people um, uh, when you should be opening it for everybody, and you're just not letting them in at all. Um, uh, the, this, this first one, which is a, just a first commandment sin, is the way that these seven, these seven play out is, uh, as I see them, is the first three are about the moral law. The next two are about the ceremonial law, which was the law about the, the way that their worship went. And the last two seem, seem to be more about the civil law, the ordinary. But if, if that's a correct uh, breakdown of these seven woes or not, if Jesus had the genius for such an outline, of course he did. But more of a genius than that, probably, and uh, definitely. And so I don't know if I fall short with this kind of a thing um, or not. But by rejecting Jesus, the Pharisees finally had shut the kingdom of heaven to their people. Um, everybody was trying to follow Jesus, and the Pharisees were saying, don't follow him, don't follow him, you follow us. Well, what have they done? They've shut and bolted the door to heaven on people. Now, what about verse 14? This is verse 14 in the NIV and the Evangelical Heritage Version and many, many others, Revised Standard Version. This is verse 14, basically in the King James. I've um, Englishized it a little bit. They devour widows' houses and offer long prayers to look good. These men will receive greater condemnation. That actually comes either from Mark 12, 40 or Luke 20, verse 47. It's a quote of both of those verses. Um, it comes from a different place. Probably Matthew didn't have it. And I, I don't want to, well, I love textual criticism and the whole science of what is the original text which we're taught um, in school. But I want to give you two examples. So uh, a great many of the more ancient and widespread manuscript copies, handwritten copies of the Gospel of Matthew are like this one, which, by the way, is... Uh, uh, Codex 01. It's also known as Codex Aleph, which is a Hebrew letter, the first letter. So this is Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century. And it goes from verse 13 there. Um, you see that on the screen? That whole thing is verse 13. And then it jumps to verse 15 without any reference to verse 14 at all. Okay, so most of the manuscripts, the older ones, from the 4th and 5th centuries, 
6th century, 7th century, most of them, and from all around um, Israel, Egypt, uh, North Africa, way all the way over to Morocco, and then uh, up north of, of Israel, you have Syria, and then moving over, you've got Greece, and finally into the areas that we call Gaul um, when we're doing this kind of thing, but that includes Germany and Italy and Spain and so forth, and even Britain. Um, they, they generally don't have of a verse here. Um, later copies, and uh, this is a codex that doesn't have a special name, but it is, uh, it's, it's known as uh, uh, 0233. So it, maybe we should call it, I don't know, Billy or something, but it doesn't have its own name. Um, but th this is a codex that does have Matthew uh, 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 23:14. However, many of the, of, the, of the manuscripts that have that verse move it around. They don't know where it goes. Sometimes it's before verse 13 or it's later in the chapter or it's in between two chapters. This happens sometimes with passages in scripture and they don't know, they don't know where they go. And that usually that's a sign that it, maybe it doesn't belong or we're not really sure where it goes. This one is quoted in other places where it does go. And another curious thing about this particular manuscript, this took me so long two days ago to figure out. This codex is also one that has two sets of Bible on it. So what you can see in the black ink is actually an altar book with the Sunday readings in it of the Gospels. But can you see in the margin on the left, kind of in the, in the, about the middle or a little bit below the middle of the page, you see like a faded red T? Can you see that? If you see that and notice its color, you'll see that in the lines, there are Greek letters in that same color that are faded. That's because this is something called a palimpsest. The, they, they took an old manuscript and instead of getting new paper, paper's really expensive. And this wasn't really paper, this was calfskin. And so they would wash it with something like bleach and then take a, 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 something like a scraper and scrape the ink off of it and then write over the top of it. When they did a poor job, you can still read it. When they did a really good job, then you have to x-ray it to read it. Um, so this is actually lectionary 1684, but it's written on top of Codex 0233, which is a late one. It's, a, it's 8th century, so we don't really even pay attention to things that are this late when it comes to textual criticism. But this does have this verse in Matthew. Have I said enough about this or are you just, are you just riveted? about textual criticism because I can go on but maybe not today not maybe not today all right verse 15 then jumping over 14 getting to verse 15 woe to you experts in the law and Pharisees you hypocrites you travel the sea and the land to make one convert and then when he is converted you make him twice the son of hell as you are um, so they, they, they go off to find these people and then make sure that whatever they do, they're not going to believe in Jesus. A convert to any religion that doesn't teach Christ crucified is finally 
a person who is going to hell. Um, and, you know, we, we can't force somebody into heaven. We can't do it with a sword. And we also can't, I sometimes use the word shoehorn people. When, you, you know, uh, to shoehorn somebody into heaven is to make them look like a Christian. But they're not really Christian. They just look as if they are. Um, and, uh, but this is where you tell somebody who's maybe not a believer, this is what you should do. This is how often you should go to church. This is how you dress. This is how you should talk. Watch that potty mouth of yours, you know, and give to the church and so forth. But if there's no faith, none of that makes any difference. What is the religion in America that's really good at making its people look really pious and holy? The Mormons. Yeah. Um, but the Mormons have questions. And we've done some really interesting, fruitful work in um, Utah and Idaho and other places in that area. Um, uh, some of you know Norma Schmidt, uh, our sister here at St. Paul's, who has made mission trips um, to Utah. Um, and asking the, the, the big question to a Mormon, which is, are you worthy because that worthiness is a big thing in Mormonism. And if you make them understand that we're not worthy, that that guilty feeling you have in your conscience is correct because the law says this, but this is what Christ has done. And this is where we make progress um, with evangelizing Mormons where possible. Pastor Mark Harris said yeah, yeah. on occasion, uh, the best question to ask when those young missionaries show up at your doors, how are you doing yeah. Yeah. We we had a group of Mormons who kept knocking on my door when I was a missionary in in Washington State, and Mark and and Pastor Cares suggested to me, he said, uh, in November, get them to come in, uh, ask them if they're if they have plans for Thanksgiving, because they give up, they they can't go home, they can't go to. They can't, they, and they, they're, they're paying for all their own food and all, their, their own housing and everything in their missionary year or two years or whatever it is. And we had a group of, it ended up being nine or ten Mormons. That, I said, if you have friends, you can invite them. And we had a little Thanksgiving party at my house on Thanksgiving Day in 2000, um, inviting the Mormon kids uh, to come. And, and uh, you know, what, what good did it do? We had a little Bible study. You know, I made, I made sure that they understood. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And they said, we love Jesus. So, okay. We know, and then they weren't expecting me to have handouts. But uh, we did, but I, I did handouts. And we're going to do, because we went, we kind of went through Galatians. And, and, uh, but, and what fruit did we bear? I don't know. I don't know. But, but we did talk to them. Go ahead. Well, you, you have to start defining terms. Yeah. What is it you mean by Savior? But they, they, they go into all of it. Maybe sound like we're on the same page is what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah yes, yeah. So that, that's why the conversation has to roll and, and, and roll on. And, uh, um, 
Um, let's uh, let's uh, let's let's let, let's move along. But yeah, it's uh, if you have the time and you have the courage, um, and somebody dings your doorbell, and whether it's uh, a Mormon or more likely a New Alm, a Job's Witness, um, or whomever it might be. Um, and you have the time, and as I said, you, you, you're, you, know, you have the opportunity and you're not afraid to, then invite them in. Invite them in and talk to them. Um, just don't get swayed to their way of thinking, um, which did happen with one of our Jehovah's Witnesses in New Ulm. He was a member at another church, a Lutheran church, not Wisconsin Synod in town. And he told me his story. Um, he kept asking his pastor if they could have Bible class. And his Lutheran pastor was, I don't know if he was past his prime or getting down in the dumps or whatever, but he said, you know, nobody ever shows up. It's not worth my time. And, he, and, the, and the guy kept saying, but I'll tell you what, I'll invite people. If you're gonna do a uh, if you're gonna do a Bible study somebody's written you know like an Augsburg publishing house something I'll pay for it I'll make sure the church is open the lights are on I'll unlock the doors I'll clean up afterwards I'll bring donuts he, and the pastor said no and this went on for a, more than a year and finally after the, one of those frustrating things where the preacher just said no not going to teach a Bible class what happened. The Jehovah's Witnesses showed up at the guy's door and said, we'd like to study God's word with you. So what happened? Now he's one of their fiercest missionaries. You know, Reminds me of one you know. of my colleague, Professor Frederick, said in chapel one time, and it connects the Pharisees and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. He said, let's never criticize the Pharisees for their zeal. Right. And Yeah. They, they were missionaries. Yeah. Mormons and Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses, unfortunately, they have the wrong message. Right. Right. Which, which reminds us to, to, to make sure you talk with them about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus Christ? How do we get to heaven? You know those answers. That's the key. Um, we have about a minute left. Can we do one more? One more woe? Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, oh, he's obligated. You blind fools, after all, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies that gold? And you say whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obligated. So I was getting at this earlier. They've got the wrong idea about what's important. Is it where God's throne is, or is it the gold? Is it the, the, the thing that's on the altar or the altar itself? Um, making them rethink their own faith, their own life, their own priorities. It makes me think about my priorities. Go ahead. Well, it's about what I do, not what God does. Yeah. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. See you next time. Thanks again for letting me do this. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.